Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. So Russ is the ultimate hype man. Um, now i got to follow up with that. But uh, th- Thank you for just joining us here on this Sunday, man. It's so glad to, I'm so glad to just be able to uh, spend this morning worshiping with you and being able to share um, what God has been placing on our hearts as a church. Um, if you haven't been with us or if it's your first time today, um, we've been covering this series on the sacraments. Um, and we've been kind of covering this idea that sacraments, you know, maybe we kind of hear these, see these pictures and ideas that it's like this physical act. It's a religious, you know, duty. It's this, you know, like kind of a religious expression of who we are. But we're kind of exploring the idea that sacraments might be just so much more than that. That sacraments are ways that God is communicating to us, his people, and to us, his creation. Sacraments can come in many shapes and forms in ways where it's a channel that we get to see a glimpse of God and his kingdom here on earth. And so today, I'm going to be sharing on the word. Um, And maybe for us, when we think of this idea of the word, different pictures kind of draw into our mind of the Bible, a physical Bible. Maybe we just imagine, you know, Moses in the mountain with the tablets. Um, Whatever shape or form we may imagine this idea of the word. Today, I'm going to be talking about the word of God. So in in reference, it could be the Bible, but I want to talk about it's so much more than your physical book, which I know is kind of obsolete these days because everything's in our phone apps. But um, I don't know how many of you guys still have a physical Bible at home or sitting in your car somewhere in the back. Um, But, you know, the the Word is so much more than this physical text. And we're going to kind of explore the idea of how the Word speaks into our life. And so if you could just join me in just prayer this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God that has not abandoned us. You're a God that has not forgotten about us. But you're a God that is in constant communication with us, your creation. We thank you that you as a heavenly being even care to have communion with us. And so, Father, speak to us boldly here today. Soften our hearts. And may our spirits just be receptive to your word. Father, I give you all the praise, honor, and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, I want to talk about how the Word is one of the channels that God uses to communicate with us. And before we even get there, I kind of want to ask this question. What aspects or what parts of the Word are contentious to our values, worldviews, and way of life? Maybe we have experiences encountering Scripture or the Word, and it's kind of just, it it turned us off to the whole God thing. How can a God that is so loving do this? In the scriptures. If God is so good, why is there so much pain and suffering and judgment here in these, in these texts? And then, you know, we kind of, I, I, even for me, I kind of wrestle with this a lot of times. And I think, God, why couldn't this have been just so much easier? Right? Like we looked at the Bible and we looked at the scriptures and we're like, why is there so much stuff? And for me, I grew up in the church. And so as I was growing up in the church, I was pretty much just simply taught, don't question it, right? Just read it, believe it, and memorize it. Um, and I don't know if you guys ever want to go on one of these retreats, but when I was in high school, it was a Bible reading retreat. 
okay? Um, it, nothing fancy about that. We literally <laughs> woke up, ate breakfast, we sat in a circle, and we just read the New Testament, all right? Um, I mean, and the Old Testament too. I mean, we, so for six days, that's what we did. There, were, there was no activities involved, all right? There was no fun, unique skits or sketches. It was straight up. We woke up, we ate, read the Bible, ate lunch, read the Bible, ate dinner, read the Bible, went to sleep, okay? So pretty much just picking up a contest of who is the fastest reader in the circle. And there was always that one kid that read it extremely slow. <laughs> they soaked in every word. <laughs> so this was a six-day ordeal, and let me tell you how intense it got. By the time we got to Psalms, which was by like day three, day four, my, one of my friends began to have a nosebleed as he was reading the text. <laughs> Instead of pausing for this, he just, kind of just kept trucking through, all right? Just shoved, shoved the tissue up his nose and just kept reading. <laughs> And so, this is pretty much my upbringing and my encounter with the Bible. Um, we were having one next week. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but for some of us that might not be familiar of that, with that setting or maybe never even had a chance or even had an inkling to open up the Bible, you know, there's so many things in this text that can be contentious to our way of life, our values, and our worldview. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, to be honest, most of my questioning came when I entered into Bible college. And then during Bible college, I began to ask and challenge the things that I was reading. And I would begin to read through the Bible, and I will just ask God, why did you do this? Why would you carry out your plan this way? Why was there so much suffering? If you're all powerful, if you're all good, why couldn't you just snap your finger and all of this could have came to an end? And so I began to question the text and it became contentious to the way that I was living and my values and the way that I was brought up. There was a lot of cultural differences and cultural clashes that I encountered. And as I was reading the Bible, I grew up in a um, Korean church and so the, the, the scripture was read through a lens of Korean history and Korean upbringing. And I went to different churches that, became, that were more multi-ethnic. And the way that they interpreted the scripture, I'm like, that's not how it was taught to me. So even in the, in the Christian circle, we, I realized that we were bringing in our lens and our worldview and our own philosophies into the, interpreting the text. But today, I really just want to kind of boldly ask us that maybe, just maybe, we have been looking through the text through the lens of our personal upbringing and our personal view. And we've been, we've been forcing the scriptures to be submissive to our way of life versus allowing God to speak into our hearts and to reveal who we really are and to reveal who he really is. And unfortunately, throughout history, you could even begin in the Old Testament, throughout the New, there's been just such mis abuse and reduction of what the word really is. And we can see even from the moment in the garden, the, the power of the word of God, that when he created the world, he didn't do this conjuring spell. There was no whole dramatic scene happening. He just spoke. And through his words, things came into life. 
And as things came into life, as, as he created Adam and Eve, he gave a command. He gave his word. Everything is yours, but do not eat from this tree because it will cause and lead to death. But as we can see historically, we failed at keeping the word of God even from the beginning. And this is just another side note, but the enemy, Satan has a powerful way of always twisting the word of God and deceiving those who listen to him. He's always deceiving in our hearts, and that's what he did with Eve. But do, will you really die? And that's kind of like the deception that our hearts always bite into. And you can see throughout the Old Testament, things that God intended to be good was twisted and perverted and used forcibly as a religious tool to judge and to cast down other people. And here in Deuteronomy 6, 1 to 3, a lot of times when we see some of these texts and we, we think about the law of God, it becomes this kind of like heavy-handed, forceful judgment that comes upon us, that God's just trying to keep his people in check, right? And, you know, there's always that dramatic moment of Moses, you know, if you've seen the film, too, of all, of all these renditions, of Moses coming down the mountain, the tablets, the law of God. And, you know, originally when I used to perceive that text, I thought, man, God's people is getting out of hand, and he, has a, he, has to, he needs to preserve some order with his people. But reading this text in Deuteronomy 6, 1 3, we can see something that's a little bit different. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you're crossing, the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you. And see, if we just end there, if we, that's, the, that's the end of the text. Man, that's a heavy-handed, cold-hearted, forceful judge. But this little one phrase that follows, and so that you may enjoy life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you, and that you may, you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. See, these laws are not simply laws that God is doing to have a form of punishment and a code of conduct. He's passing on these laws that is a covenant with his people and the covenant that people have with him. These laws weren't created just for uh, judgment, but it was created as a mean for forgiveness, as a way to worship God, as a way to be a distinct people that are marked and that others will notice there's something uniquely different about these people. God sent down prophets, and that's pretty much the majority of the Old Testament. Prophets coming, foretelling of the coming Savior. Prophets coming, trying to message the people of God to turn from wicked things that are destructive and that are harmful to us as an individual, but as, as a culture. Prophets that came to warn about sin and the consequences that will come generations afterwards. Warning them because there was this love that God had for his people. See, if God was, wasn't a compassionate God, I believe things would have ended in the garden. Once Adam and Eve had cast it out, and maybe it's just my personality and once again, my upbringing, um, I'm the type where it's like, you can call me cold-hearted, but <laughs> instead of dealing with the, the situation and the conflict, 
I just, want, I just choose to ignore it and not care, right? And some people say that apathy is worse than anger. If God didn't care, wouldn't he casted Adam and Eve, he would have shut the doors and be like, listen, I tried, and it failed. And being God, he would know that it would fail time and time again. But this compassionate God, before he casts Adam and Eve out, he covers them in clothes to cover their shame and their guilt. And throughout the word, throughout the scripture, throughout the Bible, it's time and time again this message of God coming to his people, showing compassion and love and saying, hey, this is the way to true life. This is the way to everlasting life. But unfortunately, we as sinners, <laughs> as sinful people, and we're going to get into that too, how the word reveals that in our hearts, we fail. We fail at keeping the commands of God. We fail to see the goodness and the compassion that God holds behind these laws. And for me, um, this kind of came into perspective because uh, when I first joined the Hope Church Network, which is about two and a half years ago, um, they advised you know, me to go into counseling and therapy. And you know, initially at the thought, I was like, I don't need counseling. Right? I have my life all figured out. <laughs> right? I dealt with my issues with my father. You know, I'm good. I'm in a good place right now. <laughs> right? Bitterness? No, I, I'm, I'm over that. Right? I'm healed. Um, and when people were like, are, are you in counseling? Like, what, what, what traumatic event happened? I was like, 27 years of my life. That's what happened. Right? Like just trauma for 27 years. And so I sat through these counseling sessions. And let me tell you, my counselor, I did not think we were going to get along well. Right? Um, she was like, she was much older than I was, you know, and I was just like, how can she relate to me, <laughs> right? What does she know about my life? And the first session, I was just very like, I was kind of testing her out, right? Because I'm like, this is your job. You just ask questions and you listen, right? And I was like, well, I'm not paying for the session, so whatever. I'll just take a full advantage of this, right? And so I was kind of just testing her the first session. And I remember just leaving that first hour and a half. And I was like completely floored because I felt like this woman genuinely cares about me. And she wasn't sitting there giving me advice, not, at least not for the first session. Uh, I'm sure she had a long list. <laughs> but I just remember leaving and driving home and like, man, it's been a while since I experienced compassion like that, this empathy. And as time went on, as, as these sessions continued with her, um, as, and then as advice started coming in, <laughs> direction, and, you know, she's so good at just asking the right questions, and I guess that's what a good counselor does. They ask the right questions, probing into my heart. And as, as I was revealing parts of my life, and, and as she was confronting the areas of my life where I had extreme bitterness and anger, um, especially towards my relationship with my father, I felt that she was bringing this heart of mine that I didn't even know that I had. I was confronted with tough questions, hard questions, with rebuke, but it felt so loving and caring. And I remember leaving those sessions, and I'm like, man, this is my relationship with the Father. That the Word isn't just this heavy-handed book that we use to, you know, put people down and to kind of have this metric of whether we're a good Christian or not. 
But the word is this, con- this is constant communication, this dialogue that God has, with, God has with his people. Listening to us in our prayers. Speaking to us through the word. And yes, at times, discipline and rebuke. But not in the way a lot of times culture has used it. And there are, I mean, may- maybe some of you guys have experienced this, or especially in New York City, um, you've experienced the scriptures being used in ways to you know, kind of beat people down and to condemn them. And I remember, I remember being in Union Square many years ago, and it was kind of like open-air preaching. This man was just standing in the corner of Union Square just yelling, you know, repent, repent, repent. And he drew this square in front of him with a chalk. And he asked random strangers to come stand in the square. And he started interrogating them about their sins. Right? <laughs> like, like, are you a murderer? They're like, no. It's like, but have you, have, have you ever hated anyone? They're like, yeah. It's like, you're a murderer. I was like, oh my goodness. Right? Um, and then he started, you know, interrogating more people. It's like, have you ever, you know, gotten, dr- have you ever been drunk before? And they're like, yeah, last night. You know, like, have you ever done drugs? Like, I'm high right now. Like, I, I don't think he understood the crowd that was coming around. Um, and I remember just like, just being just in shock that for some of these people, this is the first encounter they're going to have with the Word of God. And then in my heart, and I didn't know exactly what was bothering me back then, because I'm like, it's true, right? <laughs> like, we're, <laughs> we're sinners. <laughs> but just the way the message and the scriptures were being used to condemn people, and I just felt there was no grace. Where's the hope of repentance and forgiveness and of love? And a lot of times we think that's what God does with us. He, he draws this box and we stand there and he interrogates us with the scriptures. All right, let's go through the list of the Ten Commandments, right? Have you coveted today, right? Yeah, I opened up Instagram, right? Like, have you, you know, have you experienced anger and hate? Yeah, I drove down 278, right? Like, I rode on the G train this morning. Just like, you know, we just feel like God's interrogating us with these scriptures, and we're just waiting for the condemnation and the punishment to come down. But man, if that is the picture that we have of the word of God, we're missing the bigger picture of who God is. We're missing the whole aspect of his grace, his beauty and compassion. And when we begin to understand the beauty of his compassion and grace and mercy, we have to look at passages like this in Hebrews 4, 12 to 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. See, if we don't understand the compassion of God, if we don't understand the side of grace and mercy, this passage is terrifying that our hearts are exposed before him. And as we've been going through the series of the sacraments, we've been talking about how each sacrament brings death to a part of our life and brings life. And here you can see it's a two-edged sword. It's a double-edged sword. The word of God, yes, it brings death to us, but not in the way that we think that we're standing in a box and God is just interrogating us with scripture and waiting for the judgment. See, we think God delights in judgment and condemnation, 
We think God delights in just punishing his people. And if we see this passage in that perspective, this is a terrifying passage. And I don't know if you ever experienced a moment where you felt so vulnerable and so exposed in front of somebody else. I mean, for me, I'm learning that through marriage. We've only been married a little over a year. And every day, I just feel like I'm just exposing more of who I am, right? And it's becoming more and more vulnerable. It is terrifying, right? Because um, one of the things, like, even when you try to hide it, it doesn't work out so well, you know? When you're living with a person 24-7, <laughs> there isn't much to hide, right? It, is, it comes, becomes increasingly difficult. Like... Christy, she's doing the projections right now. <laughs> but I have experienced this exposure and this vulnerability during my sessions with my counselor, Carmen. And as each session went on, and the more I realized how much she genuinely cared for me, that I wasn't just another patient or a client, I don't know. There were parts of my life that were coming out that I never knew that I would share from the first session. I was sharing parts of my life of just harbored bitterness and anger that I had, I had towards people. And one of the sessions, um, it was a very interesting session because I thought it was the dumbest idea, but it was the most effective thing that had ever happened. So um, she was like, imagine this pillow is your father. I was like, this is so dumb. <laughs> you know, at least post a picture on it or something. <laughs> She's like, say whatever you want to the pillow. I was like, all right. Hi. You know, like, I don't even know where to begin. And she's like, just say whatever is on your mind. And she's like the most gentle, caring woman. And I just found myself five minutes, five minutes into this thing cursing at her pillow. <laughs> All the anger was coming out. And I just realized, wow, I've never shown that side of me to anybody else. If people asked about it, I'm like, yeah, you know, I've forgiven him. I forgave him. I'm healed. I moved on with my life. But just because I had apathy didn't mean that I was healed. And as the sessions went by, I just felt just more and more vulnerable. Because I, as her care for me, and as, as my knowledge of how much she loved and cared for me grew, my exposure and vulnerability grew. And I think when we look at this passage, we begin to understand that as God cares for us, and as we understand the depth of his love more and more, our vulnerability with the Father begins to increase. And the reason the word hurts and the reason that the word can bring death is because it will reveal to us that we actually cannot rescue ourselves from our own sinfulness. And by sinfulness, I mean this, this, this fracture in our relationship with God and this brokenness in our relationship with one another. Sin disturbs all of that. And I realized there is no cure for my greed. There's no cure for my pride. There's no cure for my, my anger and bitterness. I mean, there's exercises I can do to kind of ease it and to kind of cover it and mask it up, right? And a lot of times I'm always wrestling with myself. Am I being generous because I'm trying to cover my greed or am I being generous because the Father has been generous with me? Am I being humble because I've really grown in this area and to know that, man, <laughs> I've overcome my pride? Or am I being humble for the sake of presenting myself to be someone that's noble and virtuous to mask my pride? See, the word has this amazing thing 
this amazing aspect of really bringing out our hearts. And when we look at the commandments, and I, I think I shared this last time, when I was younger, I kept that sin book. It was a journal of every sin that I ever committed. <laughs> I was like in fourth grade, all right? I think my journal will be a lot longer now, but everything that I did, I cheated on a test, I stole this pencil, I didn't return it, right? Like, I wrote everything down, and every night I'll go through this list and I'll begin to repent <laughs> for every item on that list that I wrote, and I time-stamped it too. I was, a, I was a little bit OCD even when I was a kid. But you know what I realized? In light of the commandments of God and in his word, I fall short every time. No matter how hard I try, no matter how conscious I am of it, I fail. I fail at rescuing myself from my own brokenness. I fail at rescuing myself from my anxieties and fears. I fail at rescuing myself from my depression. I can find things to ease it. I can find things to kind of cover it up. I can find things to get me through the day. But ultimately, I end up in a place where I just feel so defeated. And I just have this mentality, I just need to try harder. The word will constantly confront our brokenness. The word, the word will constantly confront our slavery to the cultural norms. It will reveal to us what ties so closely to our heart. What is, what is the thing that motivates us? What is the thing that gives us passion and desire? Is it work? Is it success? Is it just having that dream family? And none of these things are wrong. None of, I'm not saying like, you know, just abandon everything and just read the word and go on a Bible reading retreat. But <laughs> none of these things are wrong and none of these things are evil. But the word has this amazing ability to really reveal what controls our heart. The word has this ability to reveal what we truly love and cherish. And the, world, and the word will also reveal to us that as a society, not just as an individual, but as a culture, we fail at creating this utopia, this perfect world. And I feel like on, I, every time I go on Facebook, somebody has their own idea of what a utopia looks like, right? what a perfect world looks like. And, and to be honest, you know, I mean, the, the irony is utopia means no place. <laughs> like, if you break the word down, it means there's, there's no place that's possible, right? It's not the good place, as many of us believe. It's not the good place, it's the no place, because there's no good place. And we try, we try all these attempts at creating this utopian society. But to create a utopian society, it means that our choices are stripped away. It means that each and every single one of us have to adhere to something. I mean, try getting into groups of three. I'm not, we're not going to do this right now, but get into groups of three and try to create your own utopia. I guarantee you this thing's going to fall apart in five minutes. All right? I mean, if we can't even agree where to go eat, there's, there's no way we're going to agree on what runs as a perfect society. And the best example I can give is in the book, The Giver. Um, I don't know if anyone read it um, or watched the movie. If you didn't, you had, many, you had a lot of time. Um, so I'm going to ruin everything for you right now. <laughs> In, in The Giver, it's this, the book surrounds this a place, a setting, this utopia, um, where everyone follows the same kind of daily routine, but in this place, there's no pain, there's no suffering, and actually, in even death, everyone believes they're going to this place called the elsewhere. So they actually celebrate death. Because <laughs> they, they created this perfect society where there's no pain, no suffering, but at the same time, this society has... No beauty, no color, 
no music. There's nothing. There's, no, there's nothing that could bring out a unique personality. And there's this, the main character, Jonas. He's a kid. He's, he's 12 years old. And in the black and white society, he begins to see color. And he begins to recognize there's beauty in this world. And he begins to resist this cultural norm that's going on in this utopian society. And he begins to fight it because he knows there's something so much more. He's experienced color. Now he knows there's, some, there's something out there. And in one part of the book, in his frustration, he says, if everything's the same, then there aren't any choices. I want to wake up in the morning and decide things. And see, that truth alone, I want to wake up in the morning and decide things. The fact that each one of us is created in a unique way to have, you know, decisions on what we want to do and what we desire and what our passions are, someone's utopia is not our utopia. And a lot of times we try to, we try to force everyone into this place where we, we get rid of all, you know, our uniqueness, all our, you know, personalities, all our passions and create this perfect law-abiding and obeying joyful place, but it cannot exist because each one of us deals with our own brokenness as well. And the beauty of it is in the end, when he actually runs away from this utopia, from the society, he goes into a place where now he can fully experience color. And in the book, it says that he experiences beauty, but he also experiences pain and suffering. And the word will constantly confront that no matter how much we try to create this utopia here on this earth, we're just dreaming of a kingdom that's not here. But there's this angst. And Richard Foster, an author, he wrote this. He says, this is why meditation of the word is so threatening to us. It boldly calls us to enter into the living presence of God for ourselves. It tells us that God is speaking in the continuous present and wants to address us. So this double-edged sword. And... For many of us who think that when God addresses us, he puts us in that box and just, you know, constantly beats us up for our mistakes, we've missed the bigger picture of the gospel. Because the way that God has addressed us is instead of placing us in that box, he's placed his very own son. Instead of confronting us with con this deep condemnation and punishment, he confronted us with the love of his, of his one and only beloved son, Jesus in John 1:14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the son only son from the father full of grace and truth see i imagine if god was that vindictive god that was seeking just the punishment of humanity he would have sent his enforcers he would have sent his bill collectors, debt collectors. He would have sent the, his law keepers so that we can account for all the mistakes that we ever made, for all of our greed, all of our pride, all of our you know, hurtful sentiments, all the wrong things that we've done, all the times we cheated, we lied, we deceived people. But instead of sending his enforcers, he sent his son. It says the word became flesh. When Jesus came, this book, the Bible, is no longer just a bunch of command of pages and texts. But it comes a living flesh of God incarnate. Of God becoming, one of, becoming like us. 
I mean, I, I imagine it would have been a lot less painful for God to just stand above high and just give out more commandments and decrees and just yelling at us to obey them. But instead of doing that, he, be, he came to earth, became flesh. The word became flesh to participate in our sufferings, to participate in our loneliness, to participate in our abandonment, to participate in the temptations. He became flesh to fulfill all the law, all the commandments that we fail to keep. That in Jesus, all of that was fulfilled for us. And one of my favorite passages in Corinthians where it says, He who knew no sin became sin so that we may inherit all of that. When Jesus came in the form of flesh, it was a powerful message that God isn't just preaching down at us. He isn't just giving us orders and messages and, you know, it's just, we just have this text to obey everything by. He didn't just preach down at us, but he came down to us to become like us, to show compassion, to show what the word incarnate, to show what the word looks like alive in the flesh. See, the way that Jesus loved that's what the word is about. The way that Jesus brought in the marginalized, the, the way that Jesus brought in the lepers, the prostitutes that were the, removed from society, that is what the word is about. The way that Jesus healed the sick to show that glimpse of that kingdom, the utopia. All of that came into fruition when the word became flesh for us. Flesh so that it can be crucified. It could be hung up on that tree so that we can experience the true life that the word promises. That we can experience the word in its fullness. The word that when God spoke creation to being, that we can experience that and we can inherit that. That one day we can have a greater hope. That as the word confronts us, it gives us life. As it brings death to our futile attempts to becoming, you know, our own gods, of rescuing ourselves from our brokenness, if the word points to the true God that can rescue us and save us and to bring joy and peace and grace and love and fulfillment. And, you know, that story of the Union Square, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of hesitant to call it preacher, um, but that man. <laughs> I, just, I just envision all those sinners standing there. But most importantly, I imagine the father sending his son, standing in that box, saying, yeah, for that person walking by, I'll be it. For that person over there that you condemned, I'll be it. And that, that imagery, for me, Man, that's the greatest love a father can give. It's a double-edged sword. The word directs us to the one true Savior as it reveals our hearts. And so what? My hope is that when we look at the word, we don't just see it as an archaic text. We don't see it as some just bunch of scrolls that are put together, binded together. But we see it as something that's living and breathing as the author in Hebrews mentioned, that it speaks to us if we dare to listen. 
if we dare to put aside our, you know, our, 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 our worldviews and our own personal way and value of life, if we dare to just sit with the word and allow the word of God to speak to us, what will it say? What will it confront us about? And what joy will it bring? Um, and I'll close with this, if the worship can come up. Um, so I'm a, I'm a bit of a nerd. Um, one of my favorite things to do is just to go to a comic book store and just read. Um, I just enjoy reading. Unfortunately, I haven't had much time lately to read, but I just, I love reading. Um, and as many great novels I've read, there's, there's, there's books that I've read that has stirred my emotions, that kind of gave me motivation. Um, the most recent book I probably read was Shoe Dog, and it's kind of like the rise of the Nike empire, of, you know, um, Phil Knight. Great story, um, great book. Clearly he's looking for a film, uh, someone to adapt this book into a movie. It's super dramatic. There's like pauses in the book of like for dra- dramatic effects. Um, great book though, very inspirational. But there's only one book that I've read that has convicted me so deeply that has really confronted my brokenness and that has caused transformation and redemption in my life. And that's, that's been the word of God. I mean, there's a lot of great novels I've read. I'm not knocking any other book. But there's moments in my life where I've spent time with the word and passages that I've read over and over again. Um, and, you know, I, I grew up in a church where I, when we went to these uh, getaways, these retreats for the weekend, um, you couldn't eat lunch unless you memorized a scripture. So there was a gatekeeper, <laughs> and you had to recite the scripture. And God forbid they pick a one-verse scripture. You know, I was like, all right, we recite Romans 12. <laughs> I'm like, all of that? Uh, so growing up in a culture like that, it's interesting how it's a text I've read over and over again, and there's this moment where I read it, and God just speaks so profoundly into my life and into my heart, speaks to me about my sins and how I've just been so rebellious and resistant of the grace of God. And to a point, it's confronted me and brought me down to my knees, literally, and to begin to pray for God to change my heart. I mean, Harry Potter's a good book, but that hasn't happened to me. (laughs) And so today, my encouragement is this. Because in order for the word to be that double-edged sword that brings death but also brings life, we need to intentionally try to create time. Not in like a religious, like, you know, I'm going to get a merit for this. But to be like, okay, give me a moment where I could just spend time in the word and allow it to speak to me. So here's my, my challenge for us today. Enter into the text with an open heart and mind. There are things that we're going to disagree with. And I guarantee you, the things that we disagree with, there are some cultures in the world that love that text, all right, and vice versa. I mean, this text has been around for centuries. There are people that have disagreed with it. But just go in with an open heart and open mind. Ask for God to help us understanding the text. Because it's living, it's breathing, it's interacting with us. God's having a dialogue with us. He's not just giving us a text and being like, good luck. But he wants to speak to us through the text, through the word. And ask the challenging questions. Leave room for doubt and skepticism and seek help deciphering the text. If some things don't make sense, 
Google's great. <laughs> no, oh, things don't make sense. Ask someone that you know might not have all the answers, but maybe together, collectively through prayer, that scripture can speak to us. So my encouragement is, let the sacrament of the word confront our hearts, but also point us to the true son and lover and creator of our souls. So if we can just pray together. Let's take a moment just to ask God to help us get past maybe some of our cultural bias of what the Bible is, of what the Word is. Saying, God, speak to us today. And maybe just adopting that idea that the Bible is just more than a couple of pages and words, but that the Word itself came in flesh through Jesus Christ. That his teaching and living and the way that he loved is the fulfillment of all the words that are found here in the Bible. That he didn't just teach it to us, but he showed us. He demonstrated the fulfillment of his love and his law. Let's take a moment just to ask God boldly. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to receive. Help us to recognize the faithfulness of God throughout the word. That there may be things that we don't agree with, but I think the one thing we can see that's consistent throughout the text that God has kept all his promises, that he's been faithful, that his love will continue to endure. God, just help us to recognize these aren't some archaic texts. Maybe we just choose to ignore that, that, that the Bible, the Word, is culturally relevant to us. But I'll, I'll, I'll dare to say that the Word, it supersedes our culture. It supersedes our worldviews. And it could boldly speak to us in any place, in any time, Father, just help us to see you. Give us a passion and a heart for your word. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.